Um, there was a, a woman by the name of Luann uh, Reisendine, who was a practicing physician at the University of California, San Francisco, and she also authored a book called The Female Brain. And she did a lot of studies about the differences between men and women, and specifically with regard to speech. And a few years ago, she found that, uh, according to her studies, that women speak, on average, about 20,000 words per day. Men speak, on average, about 7,000 words per day. And now men still make a lot of noises, but we, we grunt a lot. And ladies, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, how much your husband grunts, but he really does. You know, my wife will, will say, uh, hey, uh, hey, David, and I'll go, huh? You know, or, or she'll, she'll say, have you seen my keys? And I'll say, oh, you know, and, and I've actually taught her my language, our grunting language, you know, men, we, we have this grunting language and, and, uh, and so our wives pick up on it after a while. But it's sort of, uh, it's interesting to me that women communicate so much better than, than we men communicate. And uh, women, the, one of the reasons for this is because uh, women have in their brains, the way their brains are wired, about 10 times more white matter in the brain. Now, you know, you talk about in brains, you talk about gray matter. Gray matter is where you store the information. But white matter, according to scientists, are they contain those connections between the neurons of the brain. And so women's brains are much more likely to be connecting the pieces of neurological input. So we see things, we hear things, taste or, or smell or whatever. And uh, women, their brains are wired in such a way as to uh, really fire off to different parts of their brain. And, and all of that type of connectivity has a profound need or a profound effect on the need to communicate. And we see this phenomenon even with kids. You know, you'll, you'll take a, a, little, a little girl and she might be playing with a doll or a stuffed animal or maybe even an imaginary friend or she might be, she might be talking to you if you're playing along with her. But she'll sit that doll down or that stuffed animal and uh, she'll say, now you sit right here and I'm going to pour us some tea and how are you today? Well, I'm fine, thank you. And so she's having this conversation uh, with uh, her stuffed animal or with her babysitter or, or mom or dad or uncle or whoever it might be, while a boy in the same room might be playing with a car going, bah, bah, you know, it's just the way we're, it's the way we're wired. You know, it's, it's the way that God made us. And uh, but it's this idea about words, use, actually using words more than just the grunts that us men like to do. But the words that we use are incredibly powerful. They're incredibly powerful. The words that you use have the power to lift up someone's life, to bless someone. You actually have the power with your words to save someone's life. That's power that you have. The words that we use also have the power to destroy, have the power to diminish have the power to hurt. But the most amazing thing about words is not something, it's not simply the words are something you say or words are something you do, or something that you hear, but it's that words are something that you do. According to the book of James, words are something that you actually do. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of James. We're in a series called James, A Faith That Works. And and the question that I have for you today, and also the title of this message, is this. 
what have you done with your Bible? And you might say, well, that's an easy question to answer. Maybe if I get this answer right, we can go home early. You know, my Bible's right here, you might say. Or I've got my Bible on my phone. You know, I've got a Bible app on my phone. It's electronic, it's digital, so my Bible's right here. Or you might say, well, my Bible is at home and it's on a shelf in my room, I think. You know, but what have you done with your Bible? And that's the question that I want to explore with us today. And so I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And let's find out what the Bible says we should do with the Bible. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, we'll read through verse 27. I'll read aloud and you read silently. Scripture says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Heavenly Father, you've invited us into your very throne room, and what an awesome privilege that is. Uh, Father, we don't deserve to even be able to talk to you and to pray to you and come before you because you're the king, and who are we? But Father, you love us, you've called us to yourself, and you've even chosen us to be your children. And we thank you for that gift in Christ. We pray that you might illumine our hearts and our minds so that our lives might be changed today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Scripture tells us that all of us who are followers of Christ have a spiritual gift. Now, one of the things that uh, we sometimes fail to understand about spiritual gifts is this. We, we, we tend to think about spiritual gifts this way. Even if we studied it for a long time, we say, you know, I have this gift, and it's a spiritual ability that God has given me. And I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. But the emphasis of, of Scripture is that spiritual gifts are something that you do. You do something with them. And if you're not doing something with your spiritual gift, you're wasting it. God wants you to be active in using your spiritual gift to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ and to, to edify the church. Now, we know what the church is. We know that this building is not the church. The church is you and me. It is us. The people are the church. Because if a fire happened to this building, if a tornado destroyed this building, we might be the church under a tree. We might be the church in a tent. We might be the church having to rent another facility for a while, but we're still the church. And so this building, as nice as it is, 
It is not the reason we exist. It is not the reason that we function. And it's not the reason that you exercise your spiritual gift. You do it for the benefit of the person sitting beside you. You do it for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so some gifts that we use are very quiet. They're done in the background. For example, someone with the gift of service usually will not want to be out in the forefront. They don't want to be out in the limelight. That goes against everything that is a part of their gift. Someone with the gift of service might be someone who helps uh, the ladies or the men when there's a baptism. They're providing the towels, they're washing the, the towels and the robes and that type of thing. And you, the rest of us never see that. But they're in the background and they're perfectly happy serving the Lord in that way, for only the Lord really knows that they're serving. There are other gifts, like the gift of teaching, which by its very nature is very public. And I have the gift of teaching, and so there's no way to teach unless you're doing it uh, in front of other people. Uh, but one of the things that I've learned, one of the surprising lessons that I've learned about someone with the gift of teaching is this. Good teachers are known for their public speaking ability. It's sort of obvious. But great teachers are those that have learned to listen. Those that have learned to hear. Those who have shut their mouths and sat at the feet of others. Those are the ones that become the best teachers. And so in this passage of Scripture in James chapter 1, the very first thing we read about and verse 19 is, everyone must be quick to hear. Quick to hear. What does that mean to be quick to hear? It means that you have a, a spirit that is receptive to what not only what other people say, you listen to them, but most importantly, it is receptive to what the Spirit of God says to you. And so you're quick to listen to the Spirit of God as you read God's Word, as you interact with other Christians, as you hear the Word of God, and you're wondering, you're asking, God, what are you saying to me? How can I serve you? Which direction do you want me to go? And so you're quick to hear. That same verse of verse 19 says, everyone must be slow to speak. Here's where we get ourselves in trouble. You know, there's a reason that God gave you two ears and one mouth. He may, maybe he wants us to listen twice as much as we talk. There's a reason that God placed your ears out in the open. They're, I mean, they're, they're literally open. They're exposed. But your tongue is hidden. It's walled behind some teeth and some lips. There's a lot there to stop that tongue from getting you in trouble. No one ever really gets in trouble for listening. But we get in an awful lot of trouble, don't we? For talking. I shouldn't have said that. Oh, why did I say that? I hope I didn't hurt their feelings. We get in trouble when we're too quick to speak. Proverbs 14.23 says, There's profit in all hard work, but endless talk leads to poverty. Proverbs 10.19 says, He who restrains his lips is wise. There's one more command in verse 19. Be quick to hear, 
be slow to speech, and be slow to anger. The next verse continues this idea. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Notice the verse does not say don't ever be angry. And sometimes I think we have a problem understanding the terminology that we use when it comes to being angry. We talk about someone, oh, that person, he's got a temper. He's got a temper. We're using that word wrong. Having a temper is not a bad thing. It's losing it. Because the word temper means to restrain. The word temper means to dilute something, to moderate something. Okay, In in ancient times, a warrior would want to make his sword as strong as possible. And so what they would do is they would heat up their sword over a fire and they'd quickly douse it into some cold water, getting it very cold. And it would strengthen the steel or strengthen the metal. The problem with that is that that sword would then become very brittle. And so when they would, they would take that sword and they'd heat it up, and when they put it in the water, that's called quenching, which is a pretty good term to keep in mind when you have a hot temper. Sometimes you've got to quench it. But then they would take it out, and so it wouldn't be so brittle. They would slowly warm it back up again. And that entire process of getting the sword real hot cooling it down quickly, and slowly warming it up again. That way it would maintain its strength without becoming brittle. That whole process was called tempering. The problem is not that someone has a temper. The problem is that they lose their temper. They lose the restraint. There are certain things in life that will make you angry, and that should make you angry. But injustices occur. We should not be happy about that. We should be angry about that. If you're a godly man or a godly woman, and there's sin, even in your own life, that should make you angry. And in fact, if you don't have uh, some type of holy anger against sin, just like a sword that hasn't been tempered, you won't have the strength to fight it. And so when when there's an injustice that occurs, when someone innocent is killed, when a child is abused. We should be angry about that. But our anger should never be explosive. Our anger should never be destructive. Rather, it needs to be tempered with the firm resolve to make things right, or as right as we can. You see, a temper, that restraint, a temper is so valuable that it would really be a shame To lose it. It's okay to be angry about certain things. But don't lose your temper. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 21 tells us, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He says, James says we should put aside all filthiness. What's that mean, put aside? He's using the imagery of clothing. Okay? You've got your your work clothes. You go out in the yard or you go out and work on the car and your work clothes become dirty and they smell bad because you've been sweating in those clothes. 
and you come in, what do you do? You put the filthy clothes aside, right? And you, and you take a shower. That's what he's saying to do. You put your filthiness, your spiritual filthiness aside. And by the way, the word filthiness literally means dirt and grime. It, it's the vices of the world. It's the things that even the world says is wrong. Things like sexual abuse, sexual perversions, things like alcohol abuse, drug abuse, these vices that can, that can even capture our, our own hearts. We need to put them aside, take them off as if it's dirty clothes. These are traits and behaviors that are low, that are base, that are vulgar, that even the world would say, you shouldn't have anything to do with that. And so even as a Christian, if, you, if you're stuck in some of that, you need to get to the point where you decide once and for all, Put that nastiness aside. Put that filthiness aside. And he uses another term. He says, all that remains of wickedness. This is residue. What kind of residue? Well, it's the residue. Of, it's the things that are left over from when you began following Christ. You know, all of us bring some baggage into our relationship with Christ. All of us have some issues. All of us have some, some things going on, even if it's just in our heart, that our residue, and then we start to follow Christ. Well, guess what? When you start to follow Christ, that residue, it just doesn't leave like that. It's still there. It's still part of you. And there's a process called sanctification where over time, Christ is at work in you, cleansing you of all of that residue. And by, by the way, uh, you need to understand that this is, a, this is very much a reality. When you start following Jesus, your problems do not just go away. They do not go away. Anyone who tells you that if you start following Jesus, your life's just going to be happy and grand and you'll be healthy and wealthy and wise, that's just wrong. That's false. Your problems do not just go away when you start following Jesus. Because if it did, James wouldn't have told us to put this stuff aside. But the very fact that he's telling us to put it aside means it still remains with us. It is still part of our residue. So whatever your residue is, whether it's greed or whether it's sexual perversions or whether it's unhealthy relationships or drugs or whether it's pride and arrogance, whatever it is, in Christ, you have the power to take it off. You have the power to take off those old clothes and put those things aside. You have that power. Romans 6.11 says, Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is a matter of your mind. It is a matter of you understanding and finally believing that in Christ I have the power, I have the authority to put those things that used to capture my heart aside. And it may not come just quickly with a little decision that you make in the snap of your fingers, but it might come through many hours of prayer, through wrestling with God and asking God for victory. See, when you take off those wicked traits and you take off those wicked behaviors, what you do is you prepare yourself to receive God's Word, which is implanted in your soul. So here's what I, here's what I specifically need you to understand that you do. If you're dealing with some residue, pre-Christian residue, that you don't want there anymore, here's what you got to do. Number one, you need to confess it to God. you got to call it what it is. You can't sweet talk it. You can't call it anything other than what it is. But you need in prayer to call it what it is to God and say, God, this is not right. This is not what needs to be in my life. 
and you confess it to God because 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess with our mouth, excuse me, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess it to God and God will cleanse you. The second thing you need to do is ask God to break up the hardness of your own heart. Break up the hardness of your heart. We've talked a little bit about the hardness of people's hearts toward God. How some people who, they won't come to Jesus because their hearts are hard toward God. But there's also a sense in which our own hearts can become shut off to God. An imagery that you might want to consider is the idea that when Jesus comes into your heart, your heart has many rooms. And Jesus wants to go into every single room and cleanse every single room. But we compartmentalize of our we compartmentalize our lives and we say, okay, Jesus, yeah, I want you to come in my heart. I want you to save me from my sins. But I don't want you in there. That's my pet sin right there. And I don't want to give it up. I don't want to give that one up. And so you shut the door to that room. And you don't let Jesus in. You've got to let, you've got to be willing to let Jesus in all the rooms of your heart. Ask Him to break up the hardness of your heart. Jeremiah 4.3 says, Break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among thorns. And so confess your sins to God and He will cleanse you. Ask God to break up the hardness of your heart and then be ready to obey God. Be ready to do what He says. You know, when you come to church every Sunday, is this your prayer? Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you say. Teach me. Transform my heart today. Speak to my heart. The answer is yes. I will do as you say. Is that the prayer of your heart? Is that the attitude of your heart? When you read the Bible, is it just that you want to understand what it means? Or do you want God to change your life? There's a difference. There's a difference between simply understanding what God's Word means. And maybe you'd say, well, I want to understand what it means so He can change my life. And that's fair. But when you read the Bible, is it nothing more to you than a history book? Something that other people experienced way back when? Is it just part of religious trivia to you? Or when you come to God's Word and you read God's Word each day, is your prayer, God... Speak to me. Spirit of God, change me. You see, there's a difference between Bible information and life transformation. And God is in the business of transforming your life into the image of Christ. When you do read God's Word, when you encounter God's Word at church or elsewhere, God's Word always demands a response. God's Word always demands a response. There's something that we are to do. Verse 22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so if you're only reading God's word, you're deceiving yourself. But if you're reading God's word with the attitude, I'm ready to do what I read, then you are a doer of the word. Jesus said something very interesting in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. He said this little phrase, and sometimes we miss it because we just sort of blow past it to the, to the more interesting. 
parts of what Jesus said. But every single word Jesus said is critical. And Jesus said this little phrase, Take care how you listen. Take care how you listen. How do you listen to what Jesus says? Do you listen with the heart ready to obey? Or are you listening as a judge saying, hmm, that's interesting. Jesus wants me to do that. I'll take it under consideration. One attitude is completely right, and that one that I just mentioned is completely wrong. Take care how you listen. If you come to God's Word and you're exposed to it, whether in church or whether you're through your own reading or you hear God's Word taught on the radio or on TV or however, and you do not have a heart ready to obey, you're actually putting yourself in spiritual jeopardy. Because you are exposing yourself to doctrine that God will hold you accountable for not obeying. And that's a dangerous thing. You see, God's Word is a spiritual mirror. And when we read it, we see ourselves. Verses 23 through 25 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, for once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. That means he dwells in it. He lives in it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Most of us know Snow White from the Disney film. You remember that way back when? But Snow White was actually a fairy tale. And in the, in the fairy tale, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, every day the wicked queen would ask, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? And the mirror would answer, oh, my queen, it seems to me, there is none fairer in the land than thee. But the day finally arrived when the mirror replied that there was a young beauty named Snow White with skin as white as snow, lips as red as the red, red rose, and hair as black as ebony. And she had surpassed the queen's beauty. The queen did not like what the mirror had to say. And the queen lost her temper. Likewise, if you come to God's word not ready for it to expose you for who you really are. You might not like what it has to say. But if you have a heart of humility, you're going to see yourself for who you really are. And you might come away like Peter when he finally realized that he was in the presence of God himself. And Peter himself fell on his knees and he cried out to Jesus, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Verse 25 says, if you become a doer of the word, that last phrase, it says, this man will be blessed in what he does. This is a fantastic little phrase. It seems very simple. He'll be blessed in what he does. We'd almost pass it by without any other thought. But it raises a very interesting question. What is the relationship between God's word and being blessed? 
Sometimes after I preach, someone will say to me, that was a wonderful message. It blessed my heart. And I very much appreciate that I had the opportunity to bring God's word to someone's heart. And I don't diminish that. But you have to understand something. Just hearing the word of God does not bring the blessing. Doing it. Doing the word of God brings the blessing. And what I have had the rare opportunity on a few occasions of hearing from people is this. Pastor, thank you for sharing God's word. It changed my life. It changed my life. God's word is something that you do. When you're exposed to it and you receive it with a humble heart, your life can be changed. It is not the hearing of God's word that brings the blessing. It is the doing that brings the blessing. You know, a lot of us as Christians, we, we mark our Bibles. I wish there were more Christians who allowed the Bible to mark them. That is the proper response to God's word. Here's what needs to happen if you're ready to become a doer of God's word. Number one, when you have this attitude, God changed my heart. I'm ready to obey. And you read God's word. You study God's word. God's word will change your speech. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If you are exposing yourself to the word of God with a humble heart to obey everything that God says in it, then it will change your speech. You'll get into less trouble with that talking. That can get us into trouble. You'll control your tongue. God's word will also change your service. Verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Why orphans and widows? Because they're the most vulnerable part of society. Even today, and especially back in that day, when you come to an understanding that God's word is something you do, you cannot help but change the way you serve God. And you'll reach out to the lowly, the lowest people in society, those that are most vulnerable. The third thing that will happen is that God will separate you from the world. Verse 27 concludes this way. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. This world will stain you. It will. This world will cause you to be dirty. Yesterday, we had a uh, little incident with my daughter's car where part of her brake mechanism actually got stuck in the tire. Don't ask me how. But fortunately, with all of my incredible mechanic skills, I couldn't get the thing fixed. I was down there on the ground wrestling with it, I had a crowbar trying to hit the thing out. I, I mean, I was doing everything I could. I barely touched any part of that car, but I came away with my hands dirty, grimy. It just happens. It's going to happen. And as long as you live in this world, this world will stain you. This world is a filthy world. It is difficult to drive down the highway 
and not see an inappropriate billboard. This world is a filthy world. You will be stained. How do you fight it? You stay in God's Word. God will cleanse you as you humble yourself before Him and ask Him to help you walk as Jesus would have you walk. If you are here today without ever having given, given your life and your heart to Jesus Christ, that's the very first step. All of this that I've talked about is for people that are actively following Christ. And if you've never made the decision to follow Christ, today you can make that decision. The Bible tells us that Jesus died on a cross to pay for your sins and mine. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. And He came to this earth not only to show us how to live, but to save us from our own sins. And when He died on that cross almost 2,000 years ago, He paid for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. And if you believe in Him, He will save you from your sins. He'll give you the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. How can Jesus do that if He died? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and He lives forevermore. He's coming back someday as King of this world.